important political city and it was an important religious city. In Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis or Diana. A fabulous place that people came from round the known world to visit. And it's really important that we grasp how central the temple was to life in the first century. You see, in our culture and in our time, religion's a sort of peripheral thing. It's out there somewhere. You do it if you want to, but actually it doesn't affect most of us. It was not like that in Ephesus or any of the Greek and Roman cities. If, like Demetrius in that story, you were a silversmith or a craftsman of some sort, you belonged to a trade guild, a kind of professional association. When you got together to have your meetings, you went to the temple, you made an offering to the goddess or whatever god you happened to worship, and then you had your meeting, and then you ate and you drank, all in the temple. If you were a businessman and you wanted to entertain some important clients, you went to the temple, you made a sacrifice, you had your meeting, you ate and you drank. If you wanted to celebrate an anniversary, or a birthday, or a piece of good luck, or if you wanted to ask the gods to not give you bad luck, you went along to the temple, you made a sacrifice, you ate and you drank. The whole of business life, political life, social life, it all revolved around the temples. And it's very difficult for anybody who was cut off from temple life. That put you in an odd position. The Greeks and the Romans and the others had no problem at all with Christians believing in Jesus. Basically, you could believe in any god or as many gods as you want. Nobody had any problem with that. If they wanted to believe in a god called Jesus, that was fine. They probably thought he was rather a dull and boring god. He didn't do all that much. But if they wanted to believe in a god called Jesus, okay. What people couldn't cope with is that the Christians said Jesus is the only god and all these other gods like Artemis, Diana and the rest of them are not real gods. Because that kind of message really threatened people's livelihoods, as we've seen in that story. There was a lot of money to be made from making idols and trinkets and superstitious talisman and all kinds of magical things. There was a lot of money to be made just from supplying all the services the temple needed and the worshippers needed. There was a lot of money from tourism. It affected people's livelihoods if there was any threat to the idea that these gods are not real. It affected social cohesion. The worship of the gods was what held society together, at least that's what people thought. And it affected political stability. If you were against the gods, that probably meant you were against the Roman emperor, Empire, because one of the gods was the Roman emperor. And towards the end of the first century, emperor worship actually became an official part of what you had to do, not to be a traitor to Rome. So there was a big threat from these Christians because they said there are no other gods. Now, there was another group that believed there was only one god, and that was the Jews. But the Jews had been around for a long time, and they were sort of tolerated. In fact, the Romans, who were excellent politicians and always looking for a quiet life, realized it didn't do to upset the Jews because they would die rather than renounce their faith. And what the Romans wanted was peace and quiet. And so they'd actually even passed various laws that gave Jews a certain amount of protection 
from all the other religious stuff that happened. But even so, Gentiles frequently regarded the Jews with suspicion and hostility, and you get a bit of a hint of that when this guy out his hand is put up and they realize he's a Jew, they don't want to listen to him. But the Christians were neither Jews nor temple worshippers. They were just out there on their own. Now, in the early part of the first century, Christians were not routinely persecuted. There was stuff like we're reading there. Something would blow up, there'd be a riot, or somebody would bring charges against somebody because they'd upset them, or there'd be, um, maybe your neighbours wouldn't speak to you, maybe the people you did business with, with wouldn't do business with you anymore. It was all that kind of level of persecution. But towards the end of the first century, two emperors in particular, Nero and Domitian, began to persecute the Christians because Christians would not offer a sacrifice, burn incense to the emperor and say, Caesar is Lord. Because the Christians would say, there is only one Lord, Jesus is Lord. We hear that said, but you know it's a political statement. And that's how it would have been heard in those days. If Jesus is Lord, he is above the emperor. You weren't allowed to say stuff like that. John, the Apostle John, almost certainly, Peter, James, and John, the three closest to Jesus. Uh, I say almost certainly because the book of Revelation just describes him as the servant John, Jesus' servant. I think that's the clincher because there's no John in the early church who's so well known that you could just describe him as Jesus' servant John without people getting confused. If it had been somebody else, they'd have said so. This is John the Apostle. He is in trouble for some reason. We don't know why. He's sent to exile on an island called Patmos. And on a Sunday, he hears a voice and he sees a vision and he meets with the risen Jesus. Do you want to meet with Jesus tonight? Actually, John's terrified. I mean, John knew Jesus better than anybody. When he sees Jesus in as much as anybody can bear of his glory, he's terrified. He falls to the ground. But Jesus brings in a lot and says, I've got a message for you. It's a message for the churches, and it's a message that's got to be written down and then taken around to everybody. And we call that message the book of Revelation. If you read it, you'll know it's not an easy book to read. It's full of all sorts of imagery. It would have made a lot more sense in those days because a lot of the imagery was quite common in writings. Uh, some of it comes from the Old Testament and uh, from books written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a lot of the symbols would have been understood better than we understand them. Doesn't mean it's unintelligible, it means it's hard work. But the opening part of the book of Revelation is really a lot easier because it starts off with letters from Jesus to seven churches. The seven churches of Roman Asia, Turkey, and the first of them is Ephesus. Let's read what Jesus has to say to the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. All the letters are written to the angel of the church. The commentators debate quite what that means. Um, the two most likely explanations of the angel of the church means the church leader, or it may be just a personification of the church itself. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's a reflection back to the way that John has seen Jesus in the previous chapter. 
I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's another way of saying, will be with me, will have eternal life. You see, the people who became Christians were already religious because there were no people who weren't religious in those days. And they were either Gentiles who worshipped at these temples or they were Jews. And the problem that the early church had was this. Gentile Christians wanted to be Christians and keep a lot of the stuff from the temple worship. They wanted to be able to do the things they'd always done because it was part of their life. It was their culture. It was their upbringing. They knew nothing else. And they wanted to say, well, we want to bring this into the church. Surely we can be Christians and. And there were all sorts of things. If you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, both letters, he talks about meat offered to idols. And there's a long, complicated argument about it, which is difficult for us to understand. But which would have been about everyday life. For them, it's saying, how much can you still be involved with the temple, idol worship, people who go there? Because obviously, if you cut yourself off from everybody who worships idols, you cut yourself off from all the people who need to know about Jesus. And Paul unpacks all that in Corinthians. But the thing was that the pagans had this temptation, we want to bring our culture into the church. It's a temptation we've got today. It happens in every generation. And if we were to look honestly at what we do in church... Some of it is biblical, and some of it is just stuff because we live in England in the 21st century, and it's part of our culture. And some of that's good, and some of that's bad. Then on the other hand, those who were Jews and became Christians, some of them wanted to bring the whole Old Testament into the church. They said, if you're going to be a good Christian, you've got to be a good Jew. You have got to uh, follow all the laws of the Old Testament. You can only eat certain foods. You must observe certain festivals. You must do all the things that Jewish people do and believe in Jesus on top of it. And so there were always these two tensions on the church to pull in stuff from the pagan culture, to pull in stuff from the Jewish culture. But did you notice Ephesus managed to avoid both extremes? Jesus is very positive towards them. Verse 2, he says, You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. That's the ones who want to bring Judaism and the Old Testament in. They trailed around after the apostles, the real apostles and uh, when a church had been established came in and said, okay, these guys have given you the beginning, now here are all the rules and regulations you must keep. And Jesus says, you've tested them and you've found that they're false. And then in verse 6 he says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. I'm not going to tell you about the Nicolaitans because it's going to come up in more detail in another week. So make sure you're here every week. You're going to miss all the best bits. 
but they were the ones who wanted to bring the pagan element into the church. And Jesus says, great, you hate that. You don't want anything to do, it, do with it. They had avoided both the dangers at either extreme. More than that, Jesus commends the church for their good deeds, and he defines that as hard work. Apparently, the Greek word literally means labor which exhausts you. In other words, they didn't play at being Christians. They gave it everything, 110%. They really worked at their faith and sharing the gospel and everything else they did. And he commends them for their perseverance, which means pushing on through difficulties, the kind of attitude that turns tragedies into triumph and hard times into opportunities. And they had gone through persecution for being Christians and not given up. You would say this church is practically perfect. And then you get that little word in verse 4, yet. There's one thing. And this one thing has the potential to undo everything else. You have forsaken your first love. What's he talking about? The love of God or the love of one another? Read the books, they disagree. It's almost certainly both because the two are inseparable. John in one of his letters says, how can you love God who you can't see if you don't love your brother and sister that you can see? The two go together. Somehow, in fighting hard in difficult circumstances, in working hard, in struggling through, in keeping away from all the danger and avoiding heresies, somehow the love had gone out of that church. And that had the potential to undo everything else that they had going for them. Some years ago, I met a guy who was on a mission here in Plymouth. And his mission was to rescue people from the cults, particularly from the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. And he knew pretty well everything there was to know about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. He knew all their beliefs and their teachings. He knew their practices, including when he came were secret practices. And uh, he knew his Bible and he knew where they'd gone wrong and all the rest of it. And he had this passion to rescue people from these cults. He wasn't very successful. And the simple reason was he wasn't a very nice man. He got so passionate that he'd forgotten that people were people. And he just saw them as almost as things to be rescued. And people don't respond to that. Actually, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons we met the same time we were working with this guy, they were really nice. They were pleasant. They were friendly. And often it's not actually the logic in the brain that convinces you to belong to a group. It's the warmth and the love that you receive. And when this guy, who had no love, told them they were wrong, and the folks in the courts loved them and cared for them, it was a foregone conclusion which way they were going to go. And that will always be the case. We can be a church that has it absolutely right and perfect. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, and he didn't write that just for weddings. He wrote that for us to be really serious about. He said, you get it all right, all your theology, all your practice, even give your life, and if you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. I'm going to stop there, and we're going to put some questions up on the screen. And in your groups, have a chat. If you want to divide into smaller groups, or you want to move around, or you want to get some more coffee, or whatever, do. So questions, 
are there just to start you off, really. Don't feel you have to stick to them. Um, kick off and see where you go with them. I'm going to give you about uh, 12, 15 minutes, something like that. Then after that, we're going to have a short time of quiet and reflection and prayer as we try and work out what does all this mean for us.